side who will start rolling in as I'm talking, so they'll be here just in time for our speaker. My name is John Dichtel. I'm the president and CEO of ASLH, and I'm particularly excited to be here at the end of the conference. We survived. Yay. Uh, this has been one of the more, not because of Texas, not because of Austin, but this has been one of the more challenging conferences in my 20-year career of putting conferences together. Uh, and part of what's made it extra challenging have been a series of national events, um, natural disasters, political crises, uh, two hurricanes, uh, international earthquake yesterday, yesterday day before yesterday, uh, and thinking about how leadership responds to crises like that um, makes me think about the presidency and, the, and the, the office that we as a nation look to and that the world looks to for responses uh, and direction after all kinds of crises. Uh, so I think that's uh, something we'll hear more about. But my job is really not to introduce the speaker, it's to introduce the person introducing the speaker. And that person is Margaret Cook. She is the deputy director of the Bullock, Texas State History Museum. She is also the co-chair of our host committee this year. And I would like to thank her again and Laura Casey sitting here. If they could both stand up one last time to be thanked for all the local arrangements. It's been a fantastic meeting in that regard. Thank you all for coming this morning. Thank you for coming to the conference. And I will turn it over to Margaret. Thank you, John. Good morning, everyone. It's so wonderful to be with you all over the last couple of days, and welcome to our final day of inspiration and confronting the challenges that lie before us and getting um, re-energized for the work that awaits us back at home. Uh, it is my sincere pleasure to introduce our illustrious presenter this morning, who I've had just a lovely, he's going around going, what, who, what, what is she talking about? Um, who I've had a wonderful chance to, to get to know just briefly. Um, I think you're gonna find him incredibly engaging and fun and uh, uh, provocative too. So with a PhD from Yale, Dr. Suri currently holds the impressive title of Mac Brown Distinguished Chair for Leadership in Global Affairs here at the University of Texas at Austin and is a professor at the LBJ School of Public Affairs. A self-described child of theology, transformations that remade societies in the last century, if you go to his bio, he has written and spoken extensively on contemporary politics, leadership, and foreign policy, and is a frequent commentator on radio and television. His recent book, which comes out on the 12th, and we have cards on the tables uh, to remind you to go out and buy this book. Um, I think you're gonna find it incredibly inspiring and uh, thought-provoking. Uh, it's titled The Impossible Presidency, The Rise and Fall of America's Highest Office. It's now on Kindle, but it comes out in hard copy on the 12th. Um, it has been described as a masterful reassessment of presidential history. And I think it's particularly appropriate for Jeremy to be with us today because uh, of our own leadership, whatever role we have in whatever museum we're with or institution or library and archives, we are leaders and we are seen as leaders in the community. So I think being able to think about this 
leadership role is particularly crucial. As I have him come to the stage, um, he's going to be speaking for a bit of time, and then we're going to open it up to questions. There's two microphones. I'll moderate, but I want you to come up to the microphones to ask your questions. I'll remind you about that. Um, but let me share with you this uh, insight from an article he wrote in January uh, for America in the World. International affairs do not follow the patterns of electoral politics or domestic policy making. There are more powerful actors, and the world is too vast and complex for even the most powerful or dominant for long. The webs of interdependence in the international system make it difficult to foresee the consequences of decision. Get that consequences next year's conference, truth and consequences. Um, consequently, those who start down a path often find it takes them to places they never intended to go. And with that, Dr. Jeremy. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, I'm delighted to be here. You can all say good morning, too. Good morning. <laughs> I want to thank um, Margaret and Laura and my good friend and former student, Linda Henderson. Uh, Linda called me uh, and said, uh, we need you. And when Linda asks, I usually say yes if I can. Uh, luckily, I was flying out just a few hours later, so it worked out perfectly. Um, and uh, I talked to Julian Castro, who is Joaquin Castro's brother. He's a colleague of mine now at the LBJ School. And I said, you know, your brother's not showing up, so I have to go and sort of clean up the mess. <laughs> and I loved it, because Julian just looked at me and did exactly what my, my kids do with one another. He looked at me and he said, yeah, my brother, you know him, right? <laughs> Little sibling rivalry going there. So uh, I'm a historian, as, as Margaret so uh, kindly said, and I'm someone who writes and thinks quite a lot about the meaning of history for the public. Uh, and I rely so heavily on the work that all of you do. I spend most of my time in the archives and uh, speaking to students, uh, and I'm always drawing on your materials to try to show them why history matters in their lives. And that's what I want to talk about today. I'm going to talk a bit about my book in the presidency, but I'm going to talk more deeply about these three uh, words, these three big words we use all the time in our society. Words we don't really think about. They're kind of like the words freedom and sacrifice that we throw out there and don't really use. We have today a very cheap language, a language filled with concepts we don't think deeply enough about. And historicizing those concepts, as you all do every day, is how we can get ourselves to think more deeply and hopefully in more effective and inspiring ways. So the concepts I want to talk about are frontiers, civics, and leadership frontiers, civics, and leadership. And I would argue that if we think about what our society is about, these concepts are at the core of who we are. We are a society that has been about adapting to different environments, a pragmatic approach to problem solving, and most significantly, a sociability among different groups. Now, a sociability that's often been mediated by racism and violence, but that's part of the point. That's been part of the space we've operated in. Let me start with some images, some examples. Uh, many of these, since you all are public historians, you've probably seen before. I've stolen them from your websites. I use your stuff, right? Um, that's, that kind of plagiarism is acceptable, right? So uh, this is a university where I used to teach, the University of Wisconsin, Madison. 
I know Bill Brewster knows, knows where that is. Badgers always do that. <laughs> this is what the university looked like in 1880. That's the University of Wisconsin, leading public university in the United States at the time. Uh, I hope you've had a chance to walk around our campus. That's the University of Texas in 1883. That's the main building. Isn't that extraordinary? Here's where you are now. That's Austin in 1873. Um, there's the capital. The university is actually the frontier. Everyone see that? Everyone see that, the university? Uh, we live in a neighborhood, Rosedale, that people call downtown. It's, it's like out, it's, no, it's nowhere. It's, a, it's on the other side of the earth in this map. Here's just a little bit later, late 19th century. There's the capital. And there's the university. So we're like right here. I think that's MLK, so we're like right there. Look at that. It's only about 120 years ago. This is really important. This is really important in understanding who we are. Uh, even places that are big cities today have this frontier origin. It's fundamental to who our society is and where we have come from. Why do these maps mean something to us? They show us, I think, that fundamentally our society has been about blending, this is an old argument, the frontier with the city. And that's where our friend Frederick Jackson Turner comes in. Now in this room, I expect every hand to go up now. How many people have heard of Frederick Jackson Turner? Good. If you haven't, you're fired. <laughs> Turner famously, fam actually I hope our cameraman has heard of Frederick Jackson Turner. Turner famously, famously makes the case that this frontier experience, this frontier experience has defined Americans and it is the closing of the frontier in 1893 at the Chicago Exposition that he so announces, looking at the 1890 census. Of course, he doesn't mean the frontier is really closed. He means we've moved into a world where the urban environments are encroaching ever more upon the frontier spaces, where this world is becoming a very different world. The first great period of university building is in the early 20th century during the progressive period. And the second major building is after World War II. Our universities, our institutions, our public government facilities, they're all functions of those two major periods of growth, progressive era and post-World War II. And Turner is anticipating that. But he's saying something more deeply important about our society. He's making the argument that our society is filled with many different groups of people, different experiences, but that this frontier has not been the space of separation, as we often argue today, but actually the space of amalgamation, of assimilation, of coming together. That different groups have come cheek by jowl, often violently together, and formed a new society in this space. I make this point to you today because one of the biggest problems we have in our society is a fundamental ahistorical understanding of the relationship between the urban and the rural environments. Right? And most of you are in urban environments. Is there anyone who is a rural? Okay, good. So maybe you'll agree or disagree with me, but there's a fundamental condescension that urban spaces have to rural spaces and a fundamental resentment that many rural spaces have to urban spaces. That's not entirely new, but the history of our society has been a history of the blending of these together. I like this map in particular because I think you see that. You see how the urban 
and the rural are actually coming together, not as urban sprawl, but as a society, as a community. Our frontiers have been the spaces for our civic engagement. That's my point. We have our history backwards today. We presume you have to leave the rural space to become civilized, or that you have to stay in your rural space to avoid being over-civilized by those pointed-head intellectuals like myself who teach at left-wing campuses, none of which actually really exist anymore as such. We overstate and under-examine and misconstrue this relationship. It has been the frontier and the complexities, the violent complexities of groups coming together on the frontier that have provided the space for us as individuals and as communities to begin to see our lives together. And it is in those areas that our frontier has become our civilizing environment. And I want to say a little more about that. I love this image. I used it in an article I wrote years ago called uh, Frontier University, right? Here's the interesting thing about Texans. I'm not a Texan, and I still find Texans perplexing in every way, <laughs> right? I'll tell you a little secret about, about Texans, right? For all the bombast, they're wimps. There's no like, direct face-to-face -face confrontation in Texas. I grew up in New York. You tell someone what you think. I always get into trouble here with that. Never tell anyone what you think in Texas. Um, Texans, those who settled during the time of the revolution and thereafter here, uh, they were Indian killers. They were land grabbers. You know that. And they were book readers. Go over to the Briscoe and look at the inventories of people's collections. This is not an unusual or caricatured image. Those living on the frontier wanted, they wanted improvement. They wanted to be civilized. They wanted to live better lives. They wanted to historicize that experience. That's why so many frontier states invested in universities and historical institutions. The University of Texas exists in the Constitution of Texas, which commits the state to the creation of two universities of the first class. We got one, not the other. <laughs> University of Wisconsin is the second act of the state legislature in Wisconsin. So many of these states that were filled with settlers invested immediately in the creation and promotion of knowledge, in the acquisition of books, and in the most important concept that I don't want you to forget today at all, and all the other blabbing you're gonna do, they invested in the concept of self-improvement. Self-improvement, what the Germans call Bildung. The notion that everyone, especially those moving into new spaces they hadn't been in before, must always improve themselves that you are never finished as a human being. You have never done enough. There are more crops to plant, and there is more knowledge to be acquired. That's what the entire land-grant university system in the United States is about. It's the one thing Americans invent for the world, a land-grant university system, the creation of public universities for ordinary citizens, citizens from the frontier. And after 1890, with the post-Civil War, second land grant, the creation now of universities open to African-Americans and other individuals who would not have access to these traditional and universities as such, right? The creation of this space where individuals from different backgrounds could come together and improve themselves. Fundamental to the American experience to the frontier and to the notion of a civic space is this notion of self-improvement, 
and the humility that comes with it. One of our biggest problems today as a large, successful, wealthy, fat society is that we have lost our humility and lost our commitment to self-improvement. Lost our commitment to self-improvement. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is actually the argument of my book. That's not usually how I do the book talk. Usually I start by talking about the presidents. I will still, I can't help myself. I've just spent four years writing about them. You're gonna hear about them. Trust me, my family will tell you you hear about them all the time. Uh, but actually the point is really what I just said. If you really wanna know what the book's about, it's that. We have lost over time, not simply the ability to choose great leaders, we have lost the ability to be led. We have lost the ability to actually improve ourselves, to make the kinds of commitments and investments in ourselves that are so crucial to improving our society, and we have therefore made it impossible to promote the right people into leadership positions and to benefit from them when they happen to be there. So tomorrow, I argue, if George Washington or Abraham Lincoln, heroes of mine, or Franklin Roosevelt showed up, they wouldn't solve the problems because we've seen the enemy in the mirror and it's us. And that's actually your role. Because if, no, if there's anyone who's going to tell people this, hopefully in more politic terms than I just did, it's going to be all of you. Because the way people will see this, I think, is not by someone wagging their finger, but actually seeing the history. There is nothing more powerful than a narrative about yourself. Seeing yourself in the history of your society empowers and opens one's mind as nothing else can. That's why history is so important. And we all know that because that's why we love genealogies. That's why every religious faith builds itself around historical narratives. What is the Bible but what I just said? What is the Quran? but by what I just said. We might have different books. I'm Jewish, we read it differently from Christians, but nonetheless, it is a historical narrative of our lives and the lives of others that reminds us to see ourselves in new ways and changes the perspective we have on each other. If we don't tell that story in ways similar to the way I've started to now, we will never be able to rethink, improve, and regain that humility that's necessary for leadership in our society. And that's why the presidency has become impossible. We look for someone else to do the work. We're outsourcing all this. We just want to live our lives and let others go on. That is the most ahistorical thing anyone could say. And that's where the absence of history is most felt in our society. It's not the facts. I don't care, really, whether, whether my uh, students know that Antietam came before Gettysburg. I don't really care about that. They better know the Civil War came before the Great Depression. <laughs> But I don't really care about the details. What bothers me is bright kids come into my class and they've never thought about their lives in the context of lives around them. They're just floating around aimlessly. Our great leaders succeeded because they historicized themselves. That's what I try to show in my book. You all know this man, right? I love this painting, by the way. Um, and one of the other tragedies of our world today, something else you're solving, especially in your museums, is we're getting people, we have to get them to slow down and actually look at things. I have 300 undergrads every Tuesday and Thursday morning, and they're accustomed, by the time they've come into my class at 8 a.m., and yes, I teach at 8 a.m., by the time they come in at 8 a.m., they've already seen thousands of images just on their way into class. 
So I put this up, and they're waiting for the next one. Why have I, is there like a mechanical problem? Why have I left this up there? What's going on, right? Is there a mechanical problem? This is Gilbert Stewart, 1796. This portrait really does speak thousands of words, doesn't it? It tells us so much, so much about how Americans viewed themselves and what they thought the presidency was. Look at this man. He's clearly a figure above others. He stands above, but he is not. He is not in regal attire. He does not have the summons of God. He does not have any of the traditional artistic depictions surrounding leadership for any European society at that moment. Right? He is a man above others, but he is a secular man. He is one of us, just one of the best among us. And there's a quality about it, many write, of him being actually chosen by the audience as much as him choosing the audience. In a European portrait of a king, the king is choosing you. You are there because you've been invited. He's not invited us. We are part of his space here. He has the sword. He is a man of war, a man of battle. And he has the book. And he has the book. And there's a hopeful future behind him. But he's not pointing to the future. He's reaching out to us to go to that future. What made Washington's presidency so important was not that he always told the truth and never chopped down a cherry tree. Or told the truth when he chopped down a cherry tree, I guess that's the way it goes, right? Um, nor is it that he was all-seeing and all-knowledgeable. Nor is it, as Hamilton would have us believe, and it's a wonderful play, but nor is it that he was mediating effectively between Hamilton and Jefferson. None of that is really what made him a great president. What made him a great president was that he brought people together. And he brought people together by doing the simplest thing that we all do every day. He told the history of the revolution time and again as he had seen it and how everyone was a part of this new project. If you read his diary, and I'm sure some of you have in this audience, it's now all online, he spent most of his time as president actually traveling the country, meeting ordinary farmers. He spent his presidency on the frontier. He actually hated living in New York. There was enough room, in his stable was too small, he was constantly upset. Uh, there were all these people coming, he had to do cocktail parties, he hated that. Does this all sound familiar to you, Ron? He spent his time traveling the country and bringing people together, and he brought them together not by saying, I'm the greatest, but by reminding people what they had fought for. Reminding people what they had fought for. He was the great unifier. That's what this is telling us. He was bringing Americans together with the experience of war and the hope for a better future. And there's an incredible majesty and modesty in this portrait, isn't there? There's a majesty and modesty at the same time. I love this statue of Lincoln. I love the Lincoln Memorial. Uh, I, whenever I'm in D.C., I'll, I'll be there three times next week. I'll go there three times. Uh, I love going to Lincoln Memorial. I actually love watching people go to Lincoln Memorial. Uh, I, 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 whenever I'm in D.C. now, my stomach is just... Ugh. But I love, I love watching people go to the Lincoln Memorial and read. Don't believe for a moment that people don't read. You know that. They'll read your exhibit catalog if you write it well. And they will read the Declaration of Independence and the second inaugural. They stand there and they read it. This statue is actually from Lincoln, Nebraska. Anyone from Lincoln here? Okay. Um, so it's from Lincoln, Nebraska, and it's by the same, um, the same sculptor, Daniel Chester French. 
Same sculptor as the Lincoln Memorial itself. It was um, constructed, finished in 1912. It was actually dedicated by William Jennings Bryan. Really quite extraordinary. And I love it uh, because of the Lincoln in it. He's bearing the burdens of the office, right? So do you all see the, the relationship here? Here's Kennedy, and there's Lincoln. Bearing the burdens on his, on his shoulders. Uh, there's a modesty about it. There's a thoughtfulness about it. He's the war leader who's also thoughtful and introspective. Much more interested in the purposes than in the blood. This is one of my favorite uh, photos. Um, in American history, you all know this, you're all historians, we're blessed that in this terrible war, we also had photography coming of age. And here he is. There he is. Reading the second inaugural. Uh, up there, someone you might have heard of, John Wilkes Booth. This is actually a wonderful photo for teaching undergraduates, by the way. This is unrelated to my lecture, but I'm going to say it anyway. Um, because I always remind undergrads, well, if you, had your, if you could right now, wouldn't you run up there and tackle him? We know what's going to happen. But he doesn't. Right? And in fact, we see this moment knowing that. Once I've told you that's John Wilkes Booth, it changes the whole way you see that. You've stopped thinking about the second inaugural, you're thinking about the assassination, right? It's totally changed the way you see it. We can never go back and see the moment the way those in its time did. We're not actually seeing the past in this photo. We're seeing our present filtered through the photo to the past. That's the whole point, right? And we can connect ourselves to that narrative if we think about it, right? There's something different between studying history and living history. That's why people who live history are important and their opinions matter, but they don't get to tell us what we think just as we don't get to tell them what they think, right? I deal with this all the time, right? You live through something, you have a perspective that matters. I have a different perspective because I've studied it after the fact. What does Lincoln say in the second inaugural? He tells the story, the history of the United States, as he does in the Gettysburg Address. He goes back to the start. And what does he say? He says actually the most radical thing any president said to that time, that slavery was our original sin. That's what makes that address so extraordinary. He doesn't say the South was bad. They were wrong. We were right. We escaped it. I was the guy from Springfield, Illinois, in Kentucky. I didn't have slaves. Not my fault. Not my problem, right? He didn't say that, right? He didn't come and say, oh, what a wonderful crowd. I'm so glad, like, happy to have a crowd here, right? What did he say? He said, slavery is the original sin. It's been there from the start. And we have fought this war as collective penance. He turns the war from a partisan division, north and south, into a collective experience by telling that, cis, that history. He builds a civic space. Here's what I say to undergraduates. That speech actually creates a community that didn't exist before because everyone can be part of it. And when you go to Lincoln Memorial today, you see people in there, right? Everyone is part of the sin, and everyone can redeem themselves. It's completely biblical, right? In fact, the words he uses, right, are we will fight until every drop of blood taken by the bondsman's lash is paid for with a drop of blood taken by the sword. And we're all part of that experience. Now, I have to bring in Andrew Jackson. I've gone out of order intentionally uh, so I can do this. I, and I need the larger-than-life image of Andrew Jackson. Uh, 
I have to talk about this because it is so misunderstood today, and it's again why what we do is so important for building community. There's an image of Jackson in the context of Lincoln and Washington, which is the image of this populist, uh, take no prisoners, no bullshit sort of guy. And there is a lot of that to old Hickory. He certainly was um, a figure who had his problems with established authority, going back to the War of 1812, even earlier. He also was a rabid Indian killer. Grew up in the rural Carolinas. The Indians were on land he needed. The Indians were the enemy for him from the beginning of his life to the end of his life. And his views never changed on that. And he was a large slaveholder, a defender of union, but also a large slaveholder. I was telling a number of people I've been to Her the Hermitage, as I hope many of you have, a wonderful historical facility. First thing you see is how large the slave quarters were, how many slaves this man had, right? Uh, so this is, this is not someone who is free of moral taint. But here's the thing that's lost, and it relates to everything I'm talking about today. Andrew Jackson was all about community and all about building civic space. His whole argument was that those on the frontier were being left out. His problem with the bank and his problem with Henry Clay and his problem with development and banking and finance was he believed they built institutions that left those on the frontier out. And his effort was to recalibrate politics to bring those voices in. There are many things to criticize in what he did, but what he was trying to do was enlarge that civic space. And as many other historians have written, in some ways he was very successful. You saw the highest American participation at this time, and we don't just mean voting. We mean people actually getting involved in politics, running for office. The politics of the 1830s were the politics that astounded Alexis de Tocqueville when he came to our society. He saw this and believed Americans were more participatory and more democratic, lowercase d, than their European counterparts had been even after the French Revolution. That's what Jackson was doing. That's what populism is. It's important. Populism is not destroy the village. Populism is make the village more inclusive for those who have been left out. That's what Jackson was seeking to do. I'll talk about one more president, uh, specifically, uh, in some ways my hero, in some ways, he some ways the hero of my book, uh, Franklin Roosevelt. And I love this image of him. Um, these are microphones. Many of my students have no idea what these are. <laughs> then they'll ask, well, why are there wires? I have another image of him with a telephone, and they can't understand. One day, right, my kids or my grandkids will look at a post office, an image of a post office box, and they'll say, what is, you know, what is that? Franklin Roosevelt was probably the best civic space builder, the best civilizer of any president we've ever had. In fact, I'd go so far as to say he civilized our country as no one else ever had. How do I know that? What do I mean? Uh, thanks to the work many of you have done, we have thousands and thousands of oral histories from the Great Depression and World War II. How many people have read some of those histories? They're fascinating. I could spend my whole lifetime. I've spent a lot of my lifetime reading them. Uh, and, and there's a common set of stories that are told. Not everyone agrees politically. We shouldn't pretend that there was this moment all Americans just kumbaya, liked everything the same way. I remind people, Father Coughlin was on the radio, had millions of listeners saying anti-Semitic things. He called... Um, Roosevelt, a Jew lover, he used another word that I'm not going to use here. 
He called him a lover of African Americans, using another word, on the radio from Detroit, right? So it's not as if it was a period without partisan politics, but what you read in the oral histories are the number of people whose lives and views of their larger country changed because he tapped in to that frontier space and made it part of a larger American civilized society. My favorite example, the one I use in, in my book, but it's one of millions of examples, really, is Saul Bellow. How many people have heard of Saul Bellow, the great novelist uh, from Chicago? So Saul Bellow was a Russian Jewish immigrant to the United States. He came in the 19-teens as a young boy, and he describes, and he's wonderful to read because he writes, his oral history is written with a novelist's eye, of course. Uh, he describes how he came to the United States and thought all politicians in the United States were these corrupt bosses. That's what Chicago politics was like, right? It still is, right? You go from office to jail in Chicago, right? Um, three of the last four governors, I think, or something of that sort, right? Um, and Bellow describes how you know, politicians, yeah, th these are just guys on the make. And then he describes during the Depression, when he's out of work, of course, he actually left the University of Wisconsin where he was studying, walking along the midway and seeing all these cars pulled over, people with the radios on, listening to this man. And he describes how he couldn't understand it because this guy had this really funny accent. And everyone knew, they didn't know he, was, uh, he couldn't walk, but they knew he was from the elite of the elite. Right? They called him Roosevelt, right? from the elite of the elite. But here's what Bellow says, and this is what turns up in the oral histories time and again. For some strange reason, what he was saying spoke to me. And it's interesting. Bellow and most of the oral histories never say, he spoke to me because he had a solution. He spoke to me because he understood me. He understood my history. He understood where I came from. He understood what I was suffering. Now, Roosevelt really didn't understand where they came from, and he really didn't experience the suffering in the same way. He never did. He experienced a different kind of suffering, obviously. Uh, but Roosevelt was able to convey empathy. Roosevelt was able to make other people feel that their story was also his story. And how did he do that? By telling stories. If you listen to the fireside chats, that's what he does. Here's how we got into this trouble with banking, Fireside Chat 1. Here's what we're doing about it. Here's how we're all part of it. Fireside Chat, I think, number 17 or 18. Here's how we got into war. Here's what we're doing about it. Here's how we can all be part of it. Never offers easy solutions. Never promises anything on the cheap. Never pretends he has the answers. He has the understanding. He has the questions. He knows the purpose, but he doesn't offer the answers. He historicizes the American experience. Herbert Hoover was trying to economize it. He historicizes it. He historicizes it. And here's the problem. From Roosevelt's time on, this is the second half of my book, we've lost the ability to do that because we've been running so fast and we've become so self-assured that we don't think we need that history. People now see what we do as history as entertainment or some other side issue. Or, in fact, in this strange way, well, now we're studying history just so we can learn to write and read. Well, of course that's important. And I always make that argument myself. But it's not just to learn to write and read. It's because the history itself is damn important. 
It's because if you can't think this way, if you can't do what I've just spent the last 30 minutes describing, you can't lead. And lo and behold, we can't lead because we can't do that. And if you can't do that, you cannot be led because you're not open to that. And I try to document this. I think we can document this in people's calendars. And I have some of these in my book. Uh, Linda's seen some of these. I, I talk about these now all the time. I'm like, my kids think I'm calendar man. Uh, and this is why doing archival research is fun, right? Going back to the original stuff gives you new perspective. I mean, this is cool, isn't it? This is for FDR's calendar kept by Missy LeHand the day after Pearl Harbor. All of you have more on your calendars today, on a Saturday, and you're far less important than Franklin Roosevelt. Here's where, here's where he delivers the message to Congress. Right? A stay of infamy. So that's December 8th, 1941. Let's just go 20 years. This is JFK, the day he learns about the missiles in Cuba. Notice the difference in these calendars. This is spontaneous. This is easily put together. There's a lot of space. There's a lot of room for someone to come in. There is time and room for FDR to do what he did best, to think and historicize his moment. What is he doing in this time? He's actually not alone. He's with his staff. And they're thinking through how to understand this moment and what to say about it. And go read the records. The FDR library is everything online from this day. They don't actually spend a lot of time doing military strategy. They spend a lot of time trying to understand how to talk about this, how to get the American public to understand what's going on and how to get the American public to think about where we go from here, which is a historical question. How did we get where we are? How do we understand what's happened? How do we understand who we are and what kind of war we're going to fight now? Kennedy does not have that time. Here's the problem with all the accounts of the Cuban Missile Crisis. There's so many good histories of it. I'm sure you've all read, them, read it. Uh, a few of you might have even lived through it. Uh, Kennedy doesn't even have the time to barely get into the meetings. He has to keep this first week when it's secret, He's got all this going on. He's got to entertain so many leaders. He's got so many other issues going on that he has to do all he can to get even a few hours to think about this. He's coming in and out of those meetings. And you think that's bad. Here's Lyndon Johnson. This is one of eight pages for one day. March 8th, 1965. This is the day Lyndon Johnson decides to send American Marine, or Combat Marine Battalion to Vietnam to Da Nang. The beginning, not at the beginning of American intervention in the war, but the beginning of a combat American role in the war. And, and you know, and just look, uh, you all know this history. He's also dealing with our friend George Wallace then. Um, he's also got campaign, campaign contributions. Oh, that, I, my students are always surprised. Really? They had, to, they had campaign contributions then? Yes. Linda and I were just talking about this. That's why NASA is in, is in Houston. Senate Majority Leader Johnson made sure the Space Center was put in Houston. It's not logical that it would be in Houston, right? Seems actually particularly illogical after last week, right? Latin American leaks. He's dealing with all sorts of issues on the same day. He just flips from one issue to the other. Those who think about leadership usually isolate issues and look for the character of the man. We as historians look at the narrative. Look at how people are going minute to minute, day to day, event to event. And our lives have gone that way. Our architecture represents that as well. I, I'm cooking the books here a little bit, but 
That's all right. Here is, if I can get back to it, just to remind you. So that was the University of Wisconsin in 1840, actually 1880s, 1880s. That's its first 40 years of existence, right? That's the University of Wisconsin. Oops, there it is. Now, actually about 10 years ago. And you all remember what the University of Texas looked like, right? And what Austin looked like. You all remember those images? I don't need to show them again. You still have the frontier, by the way. It's interesting. Right? Our lives are like the calendars. More crowded. Less spontaneous. More categorized. We're more divided because we categorize everything. More technocratic. Less room. Less flexibility. Uh, more crowded in. And there's less space for civic engagement. We can say all kinds of things about politics, but there's a structural problem here. Our politics reflect the structure. I'm a historian. Structure always matters. That's the sort of sleight of hand in my book. I'm actually writing about the structure of the presidency by using the presidents, because writing about the structure of the presidency doesn't sound exciting, right? Uh, this is how my students experience their days now. They bike in. That could be me or one of them. They walk in, roll out of bed hungover, and they cross this street on the main drag where there's a big retaining wall that was put in there in the 60s to keep riffraff out. They cross this big space, they run the class, and then they run to the next class, and they run to the next class. There's very little unmediated space where they come together. And in fact, every day there's more pressure on our president to reduce that space because that's where some idiot carries a gun that the state legislature says they can carry, idiots. Or it carries uh, a knife in that space, right? So we actually reduce that space. We surveil that space. We put cameras in that space. We reduce the spontaneity. We take it away. We uncivilize the institution that's most about civilizing people. And it's a manifestation of our larger society right now. I mean, that's our, that's our campus. Um, it's not a very inviting, civilizing architecture. All campuses have this problem. All cities have this problem. Right? We cut ourselves off. We don't connect ourselves. There are all kinds of good reasons why this happens. These are not bad people making bad decisions in most cases. These are structures leading us, leading us to make debilitating, self-defeating decisions. This is where it lasts. This is where we still have civic engagement. In the classroom, these are good students putting up their hands, <laughs> pretending they've listened, right? And to some extent, sporting events. That's actually why sporting events draw so much attention. You see all these people tailgating out there? They're trying to regain that space. This is providing them that space, right? These men and women who have worked so hard all week and pretended to be professionals. Now they can go out and go, ooh, 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 right, and drink a lot and do everything else, right? They now have a space where they can do that. And they can have the kinds of conversations they wouldn't normally have and pretend that they're drunk when they're having conversations about other things that they're actually serious about, right? All of this can happen at the same time. These are kind of good. This is good. This is usually good, not always good. Uh, this is good, right? And, I, and this one now, it's not because of the politics of the people, but this is bad. Why is this bad? Not because they're saying Trump. This is bad 
because they're coming together out of hate and resentment. And many of them are good people who haven't found another space to come together. Insofar as we know, it's too early, we don't have real historical evidence, but as far as we know, what draws people to these crowds is the sense that they are living these lives cut off, no one cares about them, and they find in the crowd others who care about them, others who talk like them, others who experience the same things they experienced. I think it's actually less about Trump than we'd like to believe. It would be easy just to blame him or love him, either way. I don't think it's about that. It's about the search for connection. And these are the same people living in the same spaces as where I started this lecture. They're living on the edge of cities. They're living on the edge of these communities where they see people living so much better. But that resentment that's always been there, that difficulty of assimilating that's always been there is now expressing itself here because there aren't other spaces for it to be expressed within. There aren't other spaces for it to be expressed within. So what I'm arguing, very simply, uh, I, I put the book up, just put the book up. What I'm arguing is we need to return to this life. And we don't return to that life by actually going back to an earlier existence. Any decent historian, and all of you are good historians, would, would first thing say, you can't step in the same river twice. You can't replay the past. Right? Our military keeps fighting the last war, but that's not what we can do. Right? We cannot go back to the past. This is not a lecture in antiquarianism. This is history, right? Antiquarianism is the obsession with the details of the past. History is understanding the flow of time. But what the flow of time tells us is that lots of decisions made over time take us to a space, take us to a shore, take us to a land where we might not want to be. And we can go back through that narrative and think about alternative paths. Think about alternative ways of moving forward. It's not about one person. It's about how we think about ourselves and we think about our society. All that I have talked about is irreversible, but also changeable. History is the study of change. It is changeable, and we can learn. We can think. We can reacquire a sense of self-improvement and a belief in recreating civic spaces for people to come together. And all of you as historians have a unique opportunity in your institutions to explain to people why that's so important, why that's so much fun, why that's something worth doing. And you can do that as I try to by focusing on leaders who have done that. But there are many scholars and many institutions that do that by focusing on grassroots activities by focusing on the experiences of women. We went this summer to the Susan B. Anthony home, my family, uh, in Rochester. That's a wonderful experience. They take you into the small room where Susan B. Anthony and those around her wrote their newsletters and handled their correspondence. And I could see my daughter thinking about suffragists in a different way, thinking about women's activism in a different way. We can do this at many levels. There's no one right way to do it but we have to do it as history. History is essential to those three words I put up there. It's essential to our understanding what the frontier has meant in our lives and the frontier we're still living with, a frontier that's become actually starker than it's been since Frederick Jackson's time. History is crucial to understanding our civic responsibilities and our civic engagements and acting them out. And there is no leadership without historical narrative and historical understanding. 
So what we are doing is not simply teaching people to read and write and think. We are teaching them to think about the future of our society. And that's the point I'll close with. Every effective leader I've studied thought about the past to imagine the future. If you do not think about the past, this is my revision of Santayana, if you do not think about the past, you are imprisoned by the present because everything has to be the way it is. It's by looking to the past that we can see how things could be different, how they won't be the same as they were 20 years ago ever again or 200 years ago, but how they don't have to be as they are today. Many of the choices we've made for good reason have taken us into places we don't want to be today. We can revisit those choices. We don't have to be political about it. We can be historical in our institutions to inspire people to have those conversations. And that's what I hope all of you are doing. Thank you for listening to me. Thank you. You're very kind. I wish all audiences were as kind as you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, you gave me a challenge as you were speaking. I was thinking of a, 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 a book that we had on view recently. We were honored to have on. It was either from the Briscoe or the Texas State Library and Archives collections, and it was Stephen F. Austin's, one of the founders of Anglo-Texas, as we know it today, um, his Spanish primer. Yes. His Spanish primer. Um, and I'm thinking about, gosh, what conversations could we have built around having that on view because it's so important. Lynn, is it yours? It's, yeah, that's what I thought. Um, anyway, just really wonderful. Thank you so much. So let's open it up to questions. We have some time. We have a mic on uh, this aisle and one on this aisle. And just come forward and talk to us. And tell me your, your name also so I can refer to you by your name, not as you. You're going to have to go first, John. <laughs> I never have questions. At the, I've never been at a microphone to ask a question from the audience. But I actually have one this time. Very thought-provoking, um, beautiful job of bringing together many, many themes oh, that I've wanted to bring together and watched other people try and bring together. Uh, my question is, if I understand you correctly, there's been somewhat of a declining ability among presidents not only to control the amount of information and interactions, but to, to do that historicizing, yes. to tell, to draw on history. Uh, do you think that there is a connection to that in some way to the rise in the number, I think it's a rise in the number of journalists who write history? Are they sort of performing that role for the presidency? It's a great question, John. Um, so I, I'm a believer, and there are more journalists writing history. There's definitely, that's, that, that, that's empirically true. Uh, I'm a believer that actually some journalists actually do a pretty good job. I, I don't think you need to carry an ID card that says, you know, you're a PhD in history to write history. Um, I think there are people who are qualified who write horrible histories and people who are, have other qualifications who write great history. But I do think uh, one of the challenges anyone faces now when they're trying to learn the history of a particular event is what is the good history that they should read. There's more out there. 
and there's less of an accepted canon. And in some extent, that's a good thing. It allows more perspectives. It used to be that the canon was the canon driven by white men, right? So it's better that there's a broader view, but it's sometimes hard to find. Uh, it sometimes makes it hard for someone to know what good history is. Uh, so I, I hope I won't offend anyone by saying this, but anyone who picks up a Bill O'Reilly book and thinks they're reading history is not, right? Uh, O'Reilly thinks Stalin killed Patton. There's no evidence of this at all. O'Reilly presents no evidence of this, but yet tells that story as such, right? So, but if someone was reading that and thinking that's history, th this is a problem, right? Uh, and I think the solution uh, comes back to what we've been talking about. You don't learn history uh, by picking up particular books at a particular moment uh, out of nowhere, right? It's part of an ongoing dialogue. It's part of an ongoing dialogue in the way you keep up your language capabilities, in the way you keep up your mathematical abilities. It's an ongoing dialogue. And what's made it hard is we become so specialized and professionalized that we don't talk to people in other areas. Um, so in FDR's calendar, there's a lot of time he actually spends visiting different kinds of people and bringing different kinds of people in. He has time for that. And he has the inclination to want to do that. We've become a society now of people who are hyper-specialized which means when a smart person who's a hyper-specialized engineer wants to learn the history of the Cold War, they might not even know who to ask. So one of the roles I think our institutions should be playing, and I say this all the time, I'm not just pandering to you here, is in many uh, places, you are the, the repository, not just of the historical knowledge, but of the historical dialogue. Hopefully people are in conversation uh, with you in the way that Jefferson imagined the Library of Congress would be in conversation with Congress. You're providing that environment where those who are too busy to keep up with historical scholarship can at least be part of the conversation and are better positioned to know why uh, reading um, a book by a historian on the civil rights movement is more, perhaps more insightful than reading a polemical essay by someone on the civil rights movement. Next question. My name's Alice Parman. I'm from Eugene, Oregon. Hi. Hi. Thank you for your wonderful talk. Oh, thank you, Alice. I'm inspired to go take a few history courses at my university. I hope you will. Yeah. So I was wondering if you could comment on your ideas about the role of technological change in the structural changes you've described. Sure. So obviously, uh, and I should have said more about this, um, the problem is there's so much to say, and I don't know if I'm right, uh, but I'll say it anyway. Uh, there's, there, there's a, technology has, has had a number of crucial effects in the story I'm telling. The most uh, significant one, I think, is that it has just increased the amount of information. This connects to John's point, right? So it's not simply that we don't know things, it's that, in fact, we know a little bit about too many things and not enough about anything. So we're bombarded, we're overloaded uh, with information. Uh, and that just keeps, keeps on growing. And there are fewer of the effective filters that help us make use of that information. And quite frankly, we have invested less in that. We have invested less in that. So that's one challenge we face. That is a challenge, quite frankly, every president faces now. It was easier for Roosevelt, as hard as it was, for him to control the public discussion than it is uh, today. Another thing technology has done is it has changed the way we interact with each other and we interact with knowledge. And we all have seen this with employees and students. Um, students will sit through a 45-minute lecture. That's not the problem. But they're not used to doing that. Uh, they're not used to doing that. Their lives are much more about rapid movement from one thing to another. So to get people to focus 
is much more difficult. And then there's a third issue that might turn out to be even more significant as for us as historians, which is I'm not sure in our email world, texting world, that we actually preserve the records in the way we did. And I worry about that not simply because I want the archives, because that's my bread and butter, but I worry about that also because of the topic you're going to talk about next year. Uh, if you don't have evidence, it makes it a lot easier to make things up. Right? And one of the more powerful elements of our democracy has been that as much as we are about people expressing themselves, we have always, always, always been about the assessment of facts, too. That's why we have a free press. That's why we've always had congressional committees. That's why we've always done many of the things we do. Uh, I worry about that, Alice, in a world where people I know in government, um, they're just, you know, they're texting or emailing, and then I don't know where that stuff goes. I don't know how well it's archived. I ask them this at the National Archives all the time. And my takeaway is always they're doing the best they can, but they're having trouble keeping up with us. So I think that's a real challenge, not just for us, but for accountability and for truth in a society. Go ahead. Hi, my name is Helen Worka, class Hi, Helen. of 2004 from UW-Madison. Fantastic, yeah, yay. On Wisconsin. Um, so I'm currently with the Dane County Historical Society back in Madison. I know, I know it well, that's oh, terrific. Oh good, come and visit, please. I, I'll be there in November, actually, yeah. Oh good, all right, I'll see you then. Um, so earlier in the session on social media and beyond the likes, uh, there was so much good dialogue. And one of the topics that came up was about nostalgia. So in the context of your presentation today, nostalgia almost seems like a real fluff word and kind of you know, like the candy um, that people really like to indulge in. And, and you know, we were talking about how people like, they work nine to five and then they come home and, oh, I can be a historian in my you know, off time right. on weekends. So how do you feel about nostalgia and all of this, like, should we keep using nostalgia? Should we be trying to make it more concrete something? Excellent, and, and I, I, I got so caught up in talking about Madison, your first name again? Helen, Helen. sorry Helen, I was, I was thinking cheese curds and beer immediately. <laughs> I really was. Uh, um, the old fashioned makes still the best cheese curds I've ever had. Um, so Helen's point I think is very well taken, and we've all confronted this, right? People who think they're historians and what they're really doing, there's nothing wrong, I don't mean to say this is less valuable, but what they're doing is less historical scholarship and much more uh, nostalgia. What do I mean by nostalgia? It's a combination of memory and also longing for another time. Uh, built into nostalgia is a sense that there was something better about this other time and we need to get it back or we need to do something with that. I, 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 first of all, I think it's a natural human inclination. I mean, my gosh, I find myself doing this with my kids, right? I'm only in my early 40s. My kids are 12 and 14, and I find myself all of a sudden being nostalgic. My daughter just started high school, nostalgic about high school. The silliest thing. I hated high school, by the way, but I'm still nostalgic about it now all of a sudden. And I know as a fact I hated it, but I can be nostalgic about my hatred of it, right? So this is, a, this, I mean, this is unavoidable, right, uh, as we age in particular. I think it's an opportunity because it gets people to be interested in the past. What nostalgia does say is that the past matters. People have a very stilted view of it. They have actually a very Norman Rockwell frozen in time view of it. But we can work with that. And the same, this is the same thing I say to my military historian colleagues who struggle with people who have combat memories and come back and are offering a different perspective on a battle from what they've seen in the historical record. It is not our job as historians to be myth busters 
Uh, that, that, that never works. Uh, and it's not our job to tell people who are nostalgic, you know you're wrong, it really wasn't that way. Grandpa, hot dogs really never were five cents. Right? That's just not, that's not our job. It is our job to say to someone who's nostalgic, well, let's understand why the world changed. This opens up a conversation. Right? Yes, you have these fond memories and fond feelings for this time. Uh, why is it different? And it, it, did, it, did it become a different world because we had horrible people doing horrible things? Or what were the sources of that? And how can we find again some of that value you saw in the past in the world we're in today? I think it's an opening for that discussion. But that requires us to listen to them. And then requires us to engage individuals in that way. But I think that can be something that we do quite effectively. Uh, our, our inclination, at least on, in the academic side of the house, is to try to correct. We, uh, we, we can't correct. We have to explain and describe and provide a narrative. The other reason nostalgia, I think, is an opportunity uh, is because people who are nostalgic are actually interested in the primary sources. So it's an opportunity to get them interested in that. So I often will try, when I'm interviewing someone who's nostalgic, to bring stuff. Uh, and oftentimes, we can get them on a different track by giving them something interesting that connects to their nostalgia, but actually takes them in a different direction, right? That high school yearbook that all of a sudden takes my nostalgia for all the baskets I made. I never missed one in high school now, right? Gets me now thinking about something else that, I see, that I've seen uh, in, in the yearbook. So that's, I, I think we should work with nostalgia, not try, to, not try to correct it. That's great. You reminded me of a... Having to do an interpretive plan for the Betsy Ross house when you talk about nostalgia. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, next question. Hi, my name is John Marks, um, and thank you very much for a really fascinating talk. Kind um, of. I, my question is, I'm wondering how you deal in your book and how you discuss Barack Obama, uh, because it seems to me that he spent a great deal of time trying to historicize the present moment, uh, talking about history, and for him that you know, certainly didn't seem to create a, uh, be particularly successful in creating right. a civic community, and in fact gets him derided as arrogant and as trying to be the professor in chief. So how do you talk about him in your book, and how do you sort of place him in conversation sure. with all these other presidents who were successful in doing sure, that? Sure, sure. So I, that's a great question, John, and I do spend a fair amount of time on, on President Obama. Uh, I think you're right in everything you say. Uh, and one of the points I try to make in the book is that the problems I'm describing, in one way or another, were problems that actually uh, Ronald Reagan, Bill Clinton, and Barack Obama all understood. Uh, they approached them in different ways. But they actually, all three of them understood exactly what I've said. They, they would sit here and say, yeah, we were trying to do just what you said. Yeah, we were trying to do that. Uh, and that's actually part of my point. It's so hard now. And I think for in Obama's case, there was a problem of consistency. There was a problem of follow through, and there was a problem of an opposition. Uh, and those are the three things I talk about. I think Obama was much more effective as a campaigner, uh, in part because he stayed on that message and that's what he talked about. Uh, when he got into office, in, in many ways because he was a man of integrity and he was trying to do a lot of things, he got pulled apart. And so yes, he was still trying to historicize the American experience, particularly around issues of race, but he was doing it in, a, in an inconsistent way and he allowed others to define him in a way he didn't in his campaigns. Second, he didn't always surround himself with people who were doing this, right? And, and I think one of the problems, uh, it took a long time for President Obama to learn the kinds of people he needed around him. Uh, and that's a real problem, this is a point I make when I talk to policy people. It is really hard to be an outsider in office, it gets harder. Here's the paradox of the story I'm telling. There's more and more emphasis because people are dissatisfied on having an outsider, 
but because of all the problems of managing such a huge office, it's harder and harder to be an outsider coming into it. It's probably true in most of your agencies. It would almost be impossible for a smart businessman to show up and do your job, right? just as you couldn't do their job. So that was the second problem. And then the third problem is that he had an opposition that was determined to undermine everything he did, and they played to a different narrative, a narrative that had race in it, right? And that's part of where we've come now. That doesn't mean everyone who opposed Obama was racist, but it does mean that racist arguments were invoked uh, in that. Um, our, our governor does this, right? When he, goes, when he leaves the city of Austin and he goes, I don't know, to Benton, Denton and says, oh, I can have the smell of freedom when I leave the city. That's what he said. What does that really mean? What is that saying? The smell of freedom when I've left the city. First of all, the fact that you'd say that Austin is not free and somewhere else is free is an interesting thing. But what's, what's at the root of that? The smell of freedom. So Austin smells like unfreedom. Well, what kind of smell is that? Who's making that smell? Right? That, that's the politics we're in. I don't actually think the governor believes that. But that's the politics, that's the space we're in, and that's part of what made it really, really hard. And I can see what you're thinking, John, so that just means we're sort of, how do you solve this problem? I don't know the answer, but we have to at least understand, understand it. Do you have time for additional questions? Go ahead. My name is Mark Howell. I'm with the Jamestown Yorktown Foundation. Hi, Mark. Um, we've been talking a lot about presidential leadership, um, and I just feel the uh, incredible pressure of a lot of corporate decisions that are made in America over the last well, several decades. But when we think about the impact of Microsoft, Amazon, yes. Google on us, there is a corporate leadership, and we can probably expand the question to spiritual leadership or whatever kind of leadership that is affecting us as a yes. society. Yes. Are there parallels in the leadership in these other spheres that are similar to what you're talking about and seeing in presidential leadership? It's, it's a great question, Mark, and, and I think firmly yes. I mean, one of the reasons I wrote this book, one way to think about this, uh, and Linda's heard me talk to too many groups about this, this is a case study of the problems of modern leadership using the presidency because what do we do as historians? We focus on the evidence. We have more evidence of what the president does every day than we have for any other leader in our society thanks to our being a democracy, thanks to having open records, right? I can't go to a presidential library for Rex Tillerson from Exxon, right? We actually have the Exxon papers at the Briscoe Center. I've looked at them, and there's very little on what the CEO does. And why would there be? Why would any CEO want there to be a deep record of what they do, right? I can't go to the find papers on Bill Gates as CEO or Steve Ballmer. So in a sense, what I've tried to do in this book, Mark, is use the presidency as a case study of leadership because we have the records. And I think a lot of what I'm talking about, obviously inflected in different ways, applies to leaders of all kinds in terms of the overwhelming uh, amount of information they have and the ways in which they are much more reactive rather than building a kind of broader framework for what they do. It's niche marketing that, that, that they're in. Um, and what has been striking to me is how many leaders now are beginning to make this point themselves in the business world. There's been a whole series of columns, some of you I think have seen by Aaron Ross Sorkin in the New York Times talking about this as part of the discussion of how business leaders should react after Charlottesville, right? And I don't think there's a consensus, but I think many business leaders are starting to say the same thing, that for too long we've been operating in one sphere that might have produced stock values for us, but it's now undermining the larger environment uh, that we operate in. And I think that discussion is beginning to happen. I think it's definitely happening with university leaders. 
I haven't mentioned this yet. I wanted to keep it off the table. I mean, not that I haven't said other controversial things, but I didn't mention the statues. We just removed our statues. President Fenves made a courageous decision, I think. If you disagree with it, it was a courageous bad decision. One way or another, it was a courageous decision. Those statues had been there for a long time. No one actually on this campus said anything new to criticize them. But after Charlottesville, right, there was a sense that our president had and others around him that we need to do something about this. That for too long, right, we've been not telling that history. Because by leaving the statues there, what were we doing? We weren't actually embracing that history. We were just ignoring it. Right? We were just ignoring it. Actually, removing the statues, here's the irony, right? Removing the statues actually brings the history front and center. Because now we start talking about why those statues were there. Right? And of course, the story of the statues is the story of Jim Crow in the 1920s. It's actually not the story of the Civil War. So I think that many of the struggles that we see today and the problems of public leadership are problems that transcend areas. And uh, when I talk about this, and in fact, many of the ideas in the book come from talking to CEOs in different groups, and, and they're shaking their heads, yes. They love the calendar stuff, because they all struggle. <laughs> struggle, as all of us do. So this is a problem of leadership in our world today, not just the president. Okay, switch sides. Yes, please. I am, I am struck by the fact that we spend a lot of time in this field and in our society in general talking about developing leaders and becoming leaders ourselves. A lot of the discussion in the question time right now has been about leaders, but you referenced a few times people being led or being able to be led or being willing to be led. And I'm wondering if you'd talk a little bit more about that. Sure. What, what's your first name, ma'am? My name's Rebecca, and I live in Washington, D.C. Fantastic. Nice to, nice to meet you, Rebecca. Yes, um, there is a way. I think, you, I think you hit the nail on the head. We do tend to talk more about leading than being led, and every leader is also led. Uh, and everyone is a leader of some kind, but not everyone is going to be a president or a CEO, thank God, right? They're gonna do many other, many other things. Um, to be led, and this applies again if you're a leader too, it seems to me first and foremost is to see there's something more than yourself. You are not being led when you do something because it simply benefits you. That's transactional. That's a market decision. Leading implies, it seems to me, trust, connection, and some mutuality, some mutuality. And when I say we are not prepared to be led, it is that I think we undervalue, as we undervalue our history, we are undervaluing the elements that build trust, that build connection, and that build mutuality. That's the, that's the point. Uh, let me put this in the Great Depression and Franklin Roosevelt's framework to try to historicize what I just said, which sounded a little too general. Roosevelt understood that he was dealing with a society made up of many ethnic communities that did not get along. Many groups that did not get along, racial tensions, all sorts of issues. And what he sought to do was not to get everyone to pretend they agreed, but to get everyone to understand one another's problems and to see a common set of problems that they shared, even if they disagreed on the solutions, even if they disagreed on who should have what. That's why I said the New Deal was not this kumbaya moment where all Americans held hands and said, yes, we'll share, right? No, but it was that they all felt they had a common struggle. And leaders need to be prepared to do that, but they can't do that if they're not being led that way themselves, if they're not open to that themselves, because they have to be part of it. So you're not standing on the mountain. You're part of that group. We, we, dis we, we devalue that. We devalue that in every step of the way. 
And I see the study of history as a way of returning us to that. Because we're not trying to tell one narrative, right? We're not trying to pretend everyone's had the same history in our society. But we're trying, I think all of you do this, to tell a story that everyone can connect to some way. And that's what I see, that's when I think of leadership, right? The story is connecting us all. When we went to the Susan B. Anthony house, my daughter, my son, my wife and I, my wife's a city council person here, so she's a politician, right? We all brought something slightly different, but we could all connect to her narrative. That was so well done in the Susan B. Anthony house because we could all connect to it uh, in some way or another. And that's what's being prepared to be led, but we had to go in there willing to do that. We didn't go in there saying, oh, she was wrong on this, and da 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 right? You have to be willing to engage and taught to do that, uh, which we actually said to our kids before we went in. You're going to go and listen. You're going to go and learn. So that's, that's what I mean by being led, and I don't think it's actually that different from leading. They are, they are both elements of mutuality, trust, and connection. I think, Oliver, one, no. <laughs> you can ask the last one. We've got time for one more, right? You, are you still good on time, right? She's worried about my Then are we still good on time? Okay, one more. Go one more. Quick, Oliver, go now, this better be good. No, wait, no, wait, maybe. Oh, well, Gene, now that you asked me to. Um, no. Um, so I What's was, your first name, sir? Oliver. Did I turn this off? No, I'm Oliver Franklin. I'm at the Elizabeth Nay Museum here in town. Oh, okay. Which I want to have you come to. We love your museum. We, we, live near, we don't live too far away. We love your well, museum. Well, we need to have you over and Anytime. visit. Uh, give you, anyway. We'll talk, but um, I think one of the things that uh, you mentioned, what, it's interesting because I've thought about nostalgia a lot, for instance, and I remember reading an article a while back where it was entitled, Is Your Museum Making America Great Again? Oh, God. Does anybody see that? It was, it was a, it, but it was, a good, it was a good article. It was a meaningful article because it was saying that nostalgia is a very uh, potentially destructive tool, yep. and yep. especially, you know, if you're like at a, living history or if you're if you're uh, representing and and the the gentleman or lady who's making bread or whatever says yeah the, your great grandparents had to do this and they were hardy people back then and, and all this and, and they become this sort of romantic um, um, I don't know ambassador from the past that was better and hardier and all that and um, and it plays into that narrative that is so destructive right now that but what I think is really interesting is how you approached the idea of dis, not disarming, but working with that. Yes. Working with those people. That's the people that were holding those Trump signs, was they were thinking about a time when things made sense, and they are not making sense Precisely. now. Precisely. And I don't know why, and it's, but it's because they're not me. And we need, the problem what happened in the last election, I think, is they didn't get listened to. The, we all who voted on the left, or most of us who voted on the Democratic side, I think we're like, they're crazy. They're never going to win. Who right. are they anyway? They're all scary right. and weird. And that just made them that much angrier. I think that's right. We didn't include them in our narrative. I think, and I think they have a point. Exactly. That, that to some extent, we, we are part of the problem. We can't just blame them. Right. Well, and they have, whether we understand what they find is a problem, they feel like they have a problem. And we have to listen to what that is Precisely. before we can get anywhere further beyond this ledge of people who are fueling those fires and finding it, that's, a, that's an energy we can tap into and run things. Right. But, um, but the other point you made was to talk to those people and talk them out of that, or, or not out, but beyond that rosy image, and not necessarily in, an in, in a culpability way or anything like that, but just to talk them out of that, that 
notion of the glorious, you know, hardy past. And our sites can be the civic spaces where that can happen. Exactly. And you were talking about civic spaces earlier, and you were talking about how people need to hear history and learn history. And, but you were talking about them kind of, uh, you were talking about our sites as being the places to learn history, but our sites can also be the safe civic space. Yeah, absolutely. They can be spaces where these conversations occur. And this is the last, the, the last thing I'll say. It's a great comment, uh, Oliver. I think that uh, one of the most important things we, we need to recognize we're doing is we're not litigating the past. So coming back to the statues. Actually, right, not I, erasing I, it. Yeah, we're not, we're not litigating or erasing it. What we're doing is we're explaining change over time. Right? So the, the story we need to have about the statues, for example, right, is not whether you like Robert E. Lee or not, whether you're nostalgic for Robert E. Lee or not. It's the story of how our society has changed and why those statues have come to take on a meaning that's different from the meaning that others might see as nostalgic, but a meaning that they have for students who see those statues, for people of color who see those statues. And that's not to deny someone else's view of the past, but it's to talk about how we as a society have changed. That's what we do. That's what we do. Thank you, Oliver. Thank, Thank you so much, Jeremy. Thank you. So we'll wrap up. Jeremy's got to catch a plane. We have sessions this afternoon. On behalf of the host committee, thank you again for coming to Austin. It was wonderful to have you here in Texas. Have safe travels home and enjoy the rest of the time that you have here with us. Thank you. Wait, we actually have one more uh, presentation for you. Um, Kansas City, you're going to get a preview of Kansas City. Matt Naylor from the National World War I Museum and Memorial and Mindy Love from the Johnson County Museum are the co-hosts uh, for Kansas City in 2018. And I know that it's going to be a meeting where we create a civic and civil space to bring people together. We're going to historicize and we're going to create inclusion. So please come tell us about it. Thank you all for sticking around a few more moments. Um, we had a video to show and the connectivity is not working, so it's just Matt and I. Um, <laughs> but I'm Mindy Love. Um, thank you to uh, Margaret and Laura and Dina, I don't know if she's here, uh, for a great time in, in Austin. I think you've um, raised the bar for us in Kansas City as we think about what we'll plan. Um, we want to invite everyone, all of our colleagues, to Kansas City next year. Uh, Kansas City is known uh, as America's Crossroads, and we are um, excited to bring you all to Kansas City and show you all that we have to offer. Our theme for 2018 is Truth or Consequences, and I think our uh, presentation today, um, I hope got all of you thinking about how, what you might bring to the table next year in that theme. Um, history museums and historic sites have been, we've seen the surveys that they are one of the most trusted um, institutions in our country by, the, by our public. How do we maintain that trust in the future as all of our changing interpretations are coming, our, our different perspectives are being brought to the table? Um, who's telling those stories? What are those narratives? And how do we reconcile those as we move forward? Um, so we're very excited. Start thinking about sessions, proposals. I know if you go out to the website, uh, the ASLH website, um, that is already out there for you to begin contemplating that, and Matt's going to tell you a little bit about Kansas City. So Kansas City is, is my new home, having lived there now for 15 years, 
in 2015, the Royals won the baseball, so we were not really baseball fans until this 2014. And then 15, <laughs> it was very exciting, let me tell you. And then on the parade day after they had won, um, the, about, the city claims that 800,000 people came out, and 215,000 of those were on the front lawn of the National World War I Museum and Memorial, such as the civic space of that, uh, of that landmark of museum and memorial. That was the largest crowd that had been on that property, reportedly, since uh, 1926, when President Calvin Coolidge came to the uh, memorial to open the memorial and spoke to a crowd of 150,000 people which uh, it was the largest crowd that a president had spoken to up until that time, so testified the following day by his press secretary. It was the largest crowd that it had ever spoken to. So uh, it, it was a, uh, th this represents something of the values of Kansas City and the expectation that you can come with after the type of welcome that you'd experience. The people are really very welcoming and are excited that the ASLH conference is going to be there. And beyond that, of course, it has uh, a, a, an important historic uh, center piece in the history of the United States, being a uh, frontier town uh, in Independence. You can go to the bike shop where the, uh, it was the roadworthy certificate authorizing space for the um, uh, for those who were going on one of the three trails, they had to go through there with their wagons and get their wagons checked out. It's a very important place of religious history, museums that tell story of important civil rights, a place of, of uh, jazz, uh, and more recently, a place of really extraordinary entrepreneurial development. Uh, and in the last 15 years, uh, a place of extraordinary cultural renaissance. In the downtown area where we will be, there's been billions of dollars spent uh, by the public sector, enabled by a passionate uh, city government, uh, and really has renewed that, including uh, fantastic uh, investment into the civic assets, uh, the cultural assets uh, of the city. So I, I think you're gonna find it like I have, a, a remarkable uh, experience in a great city. We welcome you there. I think the blend of theme and place is gonna intersect beautifully. So we're looking forward to seeing you at the, toward the end of September uh, in 2018. Uh, I hope to see you all there. Thank you. <laughs>